It's the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thank you for taking the time with us once again. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 corporation. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hey, good afternoon, Fred. Good afternoon. And with us are Mark Scribner, Senior Transportation Policy Analyst at Reason Foundation. Hi, Mark. Hi, thanks for having me back. And also with us is Cliff Winston, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. We're happy to see you as well, Cliff. Greetings. Good to be back. Well, it looks like we have a great discussion ahead, Alan, on the yep. current state and the outlook for autonomous vehicles. A recent opinion piece in the Washington Post by David Zipper, a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, was headlined, companies are racing to make self-driving cars, but why? They may not be safer than human drivers, and they'll make gridlock worse. Uh, he starts out by talking about uh, Ford's plans announced in 2016 to offer self-driving taxis by 2021 and Lyft's plans to do it even earlier. And he says such unfulfilled promises now lie in the rearview mirror. Alan, maybe you want to get this started and, and bring in our guests here. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I think those are facts. I think, uh, yes, they're facts. Uh, but uh, my goodness, uh, maybe we can go all the way back to 1939. And, you know, with the World's Fair, when General Motors was out there talking to us about automated highways and, and some of these 1956 style videos where you have, uh, I guess, uh, the Putin of the time directing traffic from a upon high, uh, excuse me for the comment of a current uh, um, individual today, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, um, yeah, you know, maybe we've, we maybe haven't come quite as far as, as maybe we thought or some of us thought we would be, but um, I think some of the other issues that are being brought out here are just not even completely on the mark. I, th I think at least many of us know why we're doing this. And, um, but anyway, um, let's hear from Mark and let's hear from Cliff. Let me, let me do a full disclosure here. Uh, you know, David Zipper was a research assistant of mine at Brookings. Um, he's a good guy. Uh, had you know, a, a good background in economics from Swarthmore. We worked on, on various projects and you know, he was very helpful. Uh, went on uh, for a Harvard MBA. Um, wasn't quite clear you know, to me at least where he was going. And I think he sort of found himself more as a, a journalist um, than, than an uh, economic uh, analyst. Um, I, I think you know, my concern now uh, with you know, the things he's been writing is you know, given his constituency, I think his interest is more as an urbanist and, and supporting those kinds of perspectives that are generally anti-car and supportive of transit and walking and you know non-fuel related vehicles. But I think he's also um, let go his connection with economics. And I think 
uh, as, as a general point, which I actually made yesterday, the, the timing of this uh, podcast is interesting. There was an American Economic Association podcast uh, with uh, transportation and public utility economists um, actually talking about the Biden infrastructure bill. But one of the major points that I made to them is we really need more economists in the public debate about autonomous vehicles. Uh, you know, I'm concerned too much of the debate and what people hear about is coming from either planners or urbanists or engineers slash technologists. And I think they are just fundamentally overlooking a lot of just basic economic principles uh, that I think are critical in understanding a, a variety of relevant, relevant issues. Let me just briefly summarize them as a preview, at least what I'll try to weave in the discussion. You know, the first is, is just the idea in trying to do analytical work of what we call selection bias. And the importance of truly working with a random sample, but how easy it is can be fooled in thinking you have a random sample when you really have what is known as selectivity bias. And that's particularly relevant to you know, safety concerns. The second thing, uh, again, which non-economists often have a hard time doing, is really respecting people's preferences. You, know, you may not like them, you may, not disagree, you may disagree with them, but you have to count them, uh, especially if you're thinking about policy. And too often, again, I think people, again, who are not particularly not economists, overlook that people's preferences count. This is it, they've decided this is what they want. And you can't say necessarily that they are bad people or they should be ignored for doing that. Now, what you can do, and this is the third point, is say, yes, but there are social costs associated with your preferences. And that is fine. But if you're then going to go ahead and start thinking about constructive policy, you have to balance then people's private preferences and the values they place on those versus social costs. And then the policies that we're trying to look for, trying to maximize the net effect of those things. Again, too often the preferences are ignored. And finally, you know, the importance of really appreciating the, uh, the intellectual work in economics on technological change. Uh, there's been extensive theory that's led to Nobel prizes. And there's a very fascinating history of technological change, which really sheds light on the difficulty of making predictions, but certain things that one needs to bear in mind when one is making predictions about the future of a technology such as automobile, uh, autonomous vehicles. So you know, those are the points that I wanna at least try to weave in a bit in, in our discussion with uh, David's article and a number of other exchanges I've had and you've had uh, with people who are clearly naysayers on AV technology um, so yeah, that's, that, that's sort of where I am on this. Mark? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Cliff raises great points. Um, but, you know, I think what, what permeated David's article that, that struck me as just as, as wrongheaded uh, from right out the gate was the um, sort of this assumption that expectations were for AVs to be um, on the market and ubiquitous yesterday. Um, and it's absolutely true. There was a lot of hype coming out of certain companies um, that was amplified, amplified by uh, the press and certain politicians. 
in the um, in the last 10 years. Absolutely true. But one thing, and I, I pointed this out in a, a response I wrote on uh, reason.org, um, is that the, you know, if you ask ex experts, you know, Alan, the, the types who would go to the, the TRB uh, Automated Vehicle Summit, now the, now ARTS, um, if you ask them, um, you know, they were putting the, the median deployment year for the kind of self-driving taxis that was largely the focus of, of the article in the post was 2030. And that was that was from a survey of attendees in 2014, which was right around, I think, when the the hype, the AV hype uh, was was at its worst. So you don't have to look far to find sort of more reasonable expectations about where we are in, in AV development, um, certainly AV deployment. Um, and I think that if he if, if David had sought out. I guess you know more of these these the the views of of people who had been involved in the development of these technologies and thinking about this you know seriously, um, he wouldn't have come away with this um, you know this 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 picture of everyone was saying this was already going to happen. We've missed the deadline. This is a big you know AVs are a big failure. So I think you know that the kind of the pep the pessimism. That permeates the the piece, uh, you know, I think could have been avoided if if he perhaps sought out some some different views. No, I think that I think the point you're getting at also just suggests the absence of reality checks. You know, if you're really approaching approaching this objectively, there are at least two, and I think you guys will probably think of more things you'd consider. First of all, the government is a huge player in this. You cannot just you know, uh, introduce an AV to the market and try to sell it, let alone operate it. Everyone knows that. I mean, if you have any appreciation of how the automobile market works, you know, anything that you want to do goes through DOT, NHTSA, you know, and everyone. And you, I don't know, you might just uh, have seen today about NHTSA, after nearly a decade is allowing cars to have more flexible lighting beams. Did, did you see that? Yeah. The adaptive driving beam adaptive lamps. Driving. It, was a, it was, a, you know, their delay for the last, uh, you know, it was Toyota that initially Toyota petitioned in, in 2013. Exactly. It's been a go-to example of mine of uh, for the last decade of NHTSA, you know, sitting on its hands. Uh, right. So I guess for, I'm gonna have to find a new a decade, one now. And what, Japan and Europe, have had those things for two decades, right? A decade. So obviously, you know, you've got to be realistic and say, wait a minute, you know, you know, you have to account for something where government has a critical role, and they're basically going to tell you when these things are going to be out there. That that has to be taken into account when anybody in the private sector says when these things are going to be available. But there's also a second thing. You know, there is danger if what was claimed is true that you know, uh, CEOs and industry people were making claims as to when these vehicles be available, but they're basically breaking the law in terms of the SEC, because obviously these guys were using this to raise investors' money, 
right? They're the ones putting the money into this with expectations of when you know, they're gonna get a payoff on, on their investment. And if there really was this almost industry-wide false claim about when the technology was to appear, I would think we would hear lawsuits, uh, serious lawsuits from investors that have said, wait a minute, you know, you misled me in terms of when you said this thing would be available, you said this, and obviously there were years, years of delay, but we haven't heard anything like that. Because um, So I, I really don't think that there's been, quote, the hype that has been uh, permeating every bit of AV development uh, that has been claimed uh, in the media. I just think the reality checks would, would uh, argue against that. Yeah, and, and to be clear, it's not it's not every uh, company has been um, has been writing checks they can't cash on the on the sort of the deployment of this. Um, and if you look, I, I highly recommend um, uh, a timeline that it's it's on the Center for Automotive Research's website by a former analyst there named Eric Paul Dennis, and he uh, Eric tracked these kind of these you know deployment promises over the years. Um, and it's a neat little tool, but one thing you'll notice is that a lot of the missed um, uh, deployment uh, dates are from companies that no longer exist. And a lot of them were, the, you know, these were, I would say, minor players um, that were either swallowed up or they, they went out of business. And that's, you know, to be expected in this, in this uh, you know, I think, I think AV, the AV industry, and I know Alan has been, you know, following this since the beginning, is maturing. We're, we're seeing fewer and fewer of these kind of uh, Silicon Valley garage startups um, ever since we, we, we saw a major buy-in from the conventional automakers. Um, so we've, we've professionalized the development uh, over the years in a way that, you know, I think as, as Cliff is saying, you're, you're, we're entering or we've entered an era where those kinds of loose statements that may have been made by some companies in the past are less likely to occur now and in the future, because I think we've got, you know, we've just got a higher caliber of, of developers uh, that are still playing. Well, me I, I mean, not the, the, if I can throw in just a little bit, to me, it, it really depends as to who's saying this. I mean, is it, is it something that appears in a Sunday supplement of, 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 a, of a whatever? I mean, the Sunday supplements, everybody knows that that's an entertainment section that, that who knows? I mean, the stuff that's written there is, is again, for entertainment purposes. It isn't for serious business trying to, 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 to uh, really, uh, or by people who are really trying to do things. And if you look at, and it's already been mentioned, at, at the reality of introducing any new technology, um, whether it's a, it's a cell phone, even if it's the, the uh, Apple Watch, uh, uh, electric vehicles, I mean, you know, take any of them. It's been, you know, it... it it all these things when when people talk about deployment 
meaning that in fact, it's not testing, it's not out there trying to figure out what's going on, but it's actually delivering the value of the product that you are, that you're putting out there by consumers who are reaching into their pockets every day, making the, the rational decision to actually do this versus do that and so on. I mean, those, you know, those are the things that, that one really, has, those things just take an enormous amount of time. Um, let, me, let me go back at least to, to the points on economics of, of David's article. You know, he makes a point that autonomous vehicles will lead to congestion at the same time he also implies that they're probably not gonna work. So obviously that doesn't seem to make sense, right? <laughs> Why is it that you're gonna have people in them that increase VMT when the thing doesn't work? So let's just, let's set aside the, the technology question, look at the economics. All right, first of all, again, that's in line with what I'm saying. You have to count that as a good thing. People have made their choice and using these more often to increase congestion. Now, you know, there are social costs associated with that, but all of these people, because they have done that, believe they're better off by doing it. And you can't just say, I don't like it. That's necessarily a bad thing. It's something that you need to include in the calculation. And th this then leads to then the, the absurdity of some counterfactuals. You know, he'll go along and say something about safety and say, if we assumed that people in cars use buses, look how many lives we would save, okay? Now, again, in terms of preferences, people have already said they want to be in cars, not buses. So we're not even controlling for the trips. We're not saying it's the exact same car trip where you put on a bus. Bus trips are very different than car trips, okay? But even so, suppose you did make that switch. Look at the huge utility loss for everybody in cars that was forced to get on a bus, right? There'd be enormous loss. Now, admittedly, you could then say, yes, but we would save lives, fine. But the way one does serious cost benefit analysis, you have to account for the preferences. And people have preferred to go on cars and you put them in buses, you know, there are going to be huge utility losses and you will save lives. And we have implied values of life. But that's how you'd have to do the calculation initially. But then that's still not the point. If you're serious about trying to draw policy implications, then the question you ask is, what would be the most efficient way to net off these effects such that net benefits are positive? Well, obviously, we know in the case of congestion, put in congestion pricing. If you've got a problem that there's too, too much VMT out there, then go ahead and slap on a congestion tax. You know, that will discourage people and enable them, those who truly are willing to pay the cost and the social cost of their driving and equate that with their utility of driving will be out there. Those who don't, won't. That's what you wanna do. You can do a similar type of thing with any other externality. If you believe there's risk to driving, you can then add that to a per mile tax that accounts for the likelihood of accidents. That's how you do it. But you don't just sort of say these things are bad and therefore the technology is bad without realizing there are benefits 
and then most importantly, not even moving forward with any sensible policy recommendations, which just have been absent in, in these entire criticisms. In the classroom, unfortunately, it, with my students, I, I go even farther. I guess fundamentally, I argue that every individual is rational and re- behaves rationally. That, that a behavior is driven by an individual looking at the alternatives and picking from the top, okay? Period. Uh, I mean, what they do, randomly choose among the set of opportunities, pick the second, <laughs> they pick the third, whatever, they pick from the top. Now, how something absolutely gets ranked to the top on an individual and so on, so they decide to do this, who knows? I mean, that, that involves whatever kind of who knows what nonlinear did it do come to you and what's taken into account. If in fact, out of that process, you happen to make an externality be in my mind, hey, no, no problem here. I, there's no costs associated with that. How can you expect that extra ta- externality to go in and say, oh man, that guy doesn't come in at the top. Something else comes in at the top. How do you get anybody to ride a bus? If you do any mode split model almost on any trip, guess what you get? Bus is not the number one way to go. In fact, you know, whatever. And if walking is good, people walk. All right. But if you're trying to go to someplace where, hey, walking is hard and, okay, the bus doesn't go there, how the hell are you going to, I mean, if you look at, if you look at these things and how do you force people on buses and if it's going to be that people are choosing vehicles and all of a sudden you make vehicles available because you make it affordable and and available to people who couldn't afford the other ones don't they deserve a little bit of the capacity or are they supposed to stay home and 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 just walk to everywhere come on so we're I don't understand any of this stuff. Help me out, guys. Well, and I think that that's a really important point um, here. You know, really from from an equity standpoint, Alan, and I know you're you're very interested in that with your with the Trenton uh, Moves project. But the uh, big problem with um, you know in low income households in America is their lack of access to vehicles and and you know the and mobility of just the mobility. Pro- I mean. The, Exactly. Uh, and if you look at, you know, if you look at low income household VMT compared to middle income and high income, it's 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 way, way below that. So, right. you know, like an equity, uh, an equity focused policy would be trying to raise their their average vehicle miles traveled. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the the promise and you see it, there was a there was a passage in in the article. Uh, that talked about, well, why, why would we want self-driving cars in cities? We already have taxis and Uber and Lyft today. And it misses the, you know, sort of the big point that the, that AVs could potentially see the cost of providing that service. The affordability piece, the affordability piece. So, so that, you know, there's been some preliminary modeling and, you know, Alan, we've talked about how one of the funny things of this, the, the cost uncertainty is one of the big ones is cleaning costs uh, for these types of shared taxis, how you do that in a, in an affordable way uh, to keep those average, average costs down. But, um, you know, we've seen, um, you know, initial attempts to sort of uh, provide at least, you know, kind of guesstimates at this. And they're, they're coming, they're coming up with figures that put 
automated taxis, uh, uh, passenger mile costs on par with conventional transit at at high occupancies. So when you know when they're when transit figures look the best. So that is what we're talking about: providing this level of service to people who don't have access to cars. Um, and it's not just the it's not just the the poor who can't afford cars. It's also those who have physical and cognitive disabilities that prevent them from driving. This you know it, potential game changer for those folks. Uh, you know. Uh, setting aside the, the benefits to, to people who, who can drive today. So I think that's, you know, that is missed, a, a big omission um, in this, this Washington Post piece. I think also there's another reality check, again, which I think is generally going to be the theme of a lot of what I say, that, that I think is always consistent with what I think, again, is, is more of a polemical or ideological position, not just in this piece, but, but in many other uh, you know, pieces of this sort, and even on the technology side. And that is in the spirit of what Al Alan is saying. You, there is no evidence whatsoever that you make effective policy by assuming people are stupid. You know, I'm not aware you know, of any public policy that said, look, we're going to do this because we know people are stupid. And if we do this, this will get the desired outcome. Instead, what one has, if you have, again, an ideological point of view, is an outcome that you want, like no AVs or no cars or whatever, but without deducing it from, okay, what then is the policy going to be to get it that accounts for rational behavior? And if you start doing that and you think the limit, rational behavior is not going to lead to this outcome, right? Rational outcome, rational behavior is going to lead probably to AVs. If they have superior attributes, people are going to use them. And you know, we've seen that time and time again for inner city transportation, for freight transportation, for international transportation. Why would urban transportation be any different? Right. And so again, I, I think it's the absence of reality checks that I think are indications of this polemical perspective on, on these issues. Yeah, I mean, let me throw in also the reason why I have a tie on and so on today is I was down at Trenton High School this morning. You know, if you're a 15 year old, how do you get around? You have a choice of walking, waiting for the bus, who knows when that's coming and where that's going, or if your parents are rich enough, getting hauled. I mean, those are your options. You don't have the option of, walking out, getting into something that had taken you there. I mean, to me, the, the, the thing that's not taken into account with these, with these driverless things, okay, you know, you know when you have the best service? At two o'clock in the morning. Why? Because these things are so lightly used. They're available all over the damn place so that in case you have to go to get something at the pharmacy or go someplace or start your nighttime cleaning job at the who knows what it's there hey i'll take you oh my god when's the bus gonna do that when is a bus going to give somebody the opportunity to make the rational decision to take a bus when it's not there i mean cut it out and therefore this person doesn't have the opportunity and this happens all over the darn place the beauty of this stuff that isn't take is the level of service offered 
in some sense, at a drop of a hat for somebody who desires to go someplace where the competition is, I, go, I have to walk, okay? Because for a lot of folks, that is the competition, okay? Because if buses could have done it in the past, we would have done it with buses. We, I mean, it'd be there. We, we aren't stupid, are we? We would have figured out how to do that. Anyway. Also, for, why go. leave it at 15 years old? 15 year old. You know, that's also, I think, one of the tragedies that people I just, who, are, I who have the best of intentions are missing. It's not just 15 years old. It's the elderly. It's the disabled. It's people who shouldn't be behind a car because they're dangerous. I mean, all of that. And again, this would tie into thinking, look, let's think in terms of policy for society. This is exactly what we want to do is we want to homogenize the risk of all motorists. And the way to do that is AVs. Because otherwise, you're still going to have people out there, you know, with different levels of risk. And we've seen during the pandemic what happens, that the riskiest now are out there as others have gotten off the road and they're speeding and getting into fatal crashes, driving over 100 miles an hour. And obviously, that's, that's not the kind of situation you want. This morning in New Jersey, I mean, ice storm throughout New Jersey. The carnage out there this morning by people in their cars just, I mean, <laughs> driving them ridiculously. Any driverless vehicle operator would have been moving those people. Maybe they would have made them three minutes late for work, but they would have operated it in an operational uh, capacity such there wouldn't have been all the carnage that there was out there on, on New Jersey roads this morning. I, I mean, come on, cut it out. <laughs> I mean, we'll be back with more, but this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor. I'm finally getting to say something, Alan. Uh, <laughs> the, the, smart e the smart ETFs, smart transportation and technology ETF symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, look for a white paper. It's called The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. You probably know that ETFs can be a good way to spread risk with investments, maybe focus on a particular category of stocks. The website, again, is MOTOETF.com. We're back with more of Smart Driving Cars and our guests, Cliff Winston from the Brookings Institution and Reason Foundation's Mark Scribner. Maybe we should ask each of you, since we've gone over uh, what's wrong with the, this, this Washington Post piece, we'll ask each of you for your views on, on the state of autonomous mobility where, and where things are headed, maybe. Mark, you want to lead things off? Yeah, well, I, I'm not privy to, you know, the the kind of the sensitive business information uh, to, to provide real insight into where the technology is. Um, but if we're looking on the sort of the, the public policy, uh, which is what I focus on, um, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done, particularly at the at the federal level when it comes to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. Um, a lot of that has to do with, with standards that have yet to be developed um, and are needed to be incorporated in future regulations. But, um, you know, I, I remain cautiously optimistic 
um, in part because we finally cleared ADB headlamps through NHTSA. So maybe that's the source of my optimism, uh, cautious optimism. But, um, you know, I think we still have a lot of people working on these issues in key positions uh, that are focused on, on what is needed and are realistic about uh, when they're going to have the information they need to act. Um, so, you know, from, from my perspective, I, I think we've got, you know, years before we, we kind of see the ubiquitous AVs we'd all like to see, but uh, I, I think we, we haven't made any major mistakes uh, that would, uh, you know, certainly I'm not alarmed by the, the progress that's been made at both the, the technological and the, and the policy levels. Cliff? Yes, I'm, you know, I'm more of a consumer of what Mark and Alan have, frankly, <laughs> on an awful lot of what I do um, uh, in, in terms of uh, my thinking about the cars. What, what I would switch a bit to now is autonomous trucks, uh, because I think that's a story that does seem to sort of go less noticed, but seems to have some positive direction and also you know, again, potential benefits that I get, again, I think people are maybe not focusing on. Uh, you know, the obvious advantage with automation, both with trucks and ships is help in dealing with things like the supply shortages and the breakdown in the supply chain. You know, that could, that could go a long way uh, in, helping, in helping things move along better and not have you know, the vulnerability to driver shortages and whatever. But there's also the bigger picture thing. And so this really you know, uh, dovetails more into my research and a paper that I share with Mark that will be part of a book is we did a very just rough calculation or what are the potential benefits in terms of inventory logistics cost savings to shippers from autonomous trucks making, I think, fairly modest assumptions on what the travel time and travel time reliability improvements would be. And they're huge. You know, we're talking, you know, good 30, 40 billion bucks in terms of reducing inventory and logistics costs. And, you know, they're, they're probably missing out on a number of other benefits. So, you know, at a time where there's concerns about the economy more efficient, more productive, what have you, you know, autonomous trucks are a very valuable tool. And I think the companies know this. I mean, that is the, the shippers know this. And I think that the autonomous truck companies themselves are smart and they're you know, dealing with these people and you know, moving along with what appear to be some pretty successful uh, demonstrations and are, are broadening where they want to go. Uh, I think what's going on in Michigan is, is, a, is a promising development, and I'm sure we'll see more. So I think my growing sense on this is autonomous trucks will probably help lead the way for autonomous cars. And I think that, you know, that they will operate more on the highways and not sort of get so much involved in the, the local, local travel, but that in and of itself could lead to considerable benefits and attract positive attention or for autonomy in general. So that's, that's what I'm hoping we start to, to see more of uh, as time goes on. Well, Al Allen's talked at length about the benefits of autonomous 
or the technology, autonomous technology in trucks, even if you don't pull the driver, maybe especially if yeah. you don't pull the driver, the benefits. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I think that if there's any lacking or that's been in the, in the uh, goods movement sector has been uh, the, 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 the slowness by which um, at least I perceive, and it may be because I'm just clueless, uh, that the um, that the uh, long haul or medium long haul trucking entities to adopt automated driving, advanced driver assistance systems for for drivers. In other words, before you pull the driver out, and 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 you know again, I no no analytical, just conceptual look at at that. Uh, to me, you know, I, I look at the job of driving a truck. I mean, I can't see myself driving a truck 10 hours a day to feed my family. I mean, I, I, I'd rather dig ditches, I think. I, I don't know. I mean, be in a coal mine or something. I, it, to me, it just, you know, that might be very entertaining or something for the few co first couple of days. But to do that, to feed your family is my goodness, the amount of concentration you need to be even in open roads uh, to not die, not kill yourself is, is just enormous. And, 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 and to me, the shame of uh, maybe it's a shame that I would like to see more of an emphasis by these companies to put just the advanced driver assistance stuff, the stuff that doesn't take the driver out of the out of the out of the, uh, the cab, but helps him or her. And, and, and of course, the other piece of it to really, if, if one on a public policy side wanted to influence that, say, hey, I'm going to give them another hour service. Holy mackerel. Then you put that in all your things and see what the economic implications of that and productivity and da da da. And da, da. Plus, the driver is there more relaxed, that, you know, easier job, more people want to do it. I, <laughs> Because of that, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Cliff, it needs some of your analytical work to go in there and really say, oh, my goodness, this well, is all hanging the, the fruit. unions are going to have a lot to say about this. You know, I think you know, one, one of the big problems yeah. that automation faces is obviously unions who, of course. Are, you know, before you could even get the words out, are screaming about jobs and pay. So although there's no question about how increasingly difficult driving a truck has become to make a living. You know, there was that New York, I think it was a New York Times Magazine had a whole section just going in, in almost gruesome detail about really what it's like to be out there and do this to make a living that even though the drivers might say, hey, it'd be nice if these things were automated, then unions start saying, yeah, but you know, we're going to start cutting jobs. And before you know it, you'll be out of a job. And so then we're back into the, to that debate as to, wait a minute, but you know, can automation lead to other jobs that might be better? And of course they expand the economy. And so you'll get employment there. But I, I, again, you know, these are built-in rigidities uh, in the American economy that are very difficult to overcome. But I think, again, the, the key of doing it is experiments. So I think the more we see the trucks out there performing success, successfully, efficiently, more companies using and saying, wait, this is a good thing. And drivers, you know, think, okay, we can do something else. Maybe we'll lead a flotilla. There'll be one of us. 
and that kind of thing, a variety of things that can happen. And of course, new jobs develop, but you can't predict because we're dealing with innovation. You're not going to know what, what happens. Then I think we'll make some, you know, make some progress, but you know, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, and I, I would say on the point of, of unions, now one, it's, it's important to note that, that long-haul truck drivers, very few of them are represented by, by any union, but you know, most of the unionized truck drivers are in last mile delivery, like UPS. Um, but they obviously, they see the writing on the wall. So even if you, when they see the, these experiments taking place uh, uh, for uh, long-haul carriers, you know, they, they realize that that's eventually coming to, uh, to them. Um, on the transit side, transit and labor side, it was, it was interesting. If, if you watch the recent um, House uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee hearing on AVs and, and, and um, uh, trucking and transit, the head of New York MTA's transit union uh, pointedly said, you know, we're never going to accept getting you know operators out of the buses or out of the trains um and he can point to and the thing that makes th that this different for transit is that since the the urban mass transportation act 1964 which funded the ta the takeover of uh bankrupt private transit companies um a provision in there called section 13c basically prevents any kind of labor saving uh, uh, policy from any transit agency that's receiving federal funding. And this is, has to be certified by the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, not it's a, a lot of folks don't. I think, it, I think there's a huge amount of money you have to pay somebody to get rid of them. I think you can oh, get rid it's, of people, it's but, any, but you wind up paying a fortune to do it. It's it's it is the most it is it it goes well beyond any kind of provision you would see in a collective bargaining agreement. Right. It is a it, it basically prevents any kind of uh, uh, adverse impact to the right. unionized workforce yeah. ever. Um, so that is going to be a tremendous barrier uh, to get this into. Uh, mass transit vehicles. I mean, I know, you know, folks who work at, at transit agencies and in municipalities are well aware of this provision. But, you know, when we hear about some of these, uh, the automation in the context of transit, this just, you know, immediately 13C comes to mind, that is the barrier. And that is a public policy barrier um, that, you know, regardless of how good the technology is, we're going to have to find a way through it. True, but, but Mark, what about though, the economics? In other words, if transit share continues to plummet, you know, is there a point when you know, the taxpayer-funded subsidies for the amount of ridership is so ridiculous that people say, look, just as a matter of economics, there's just not enough use of transit to even justify it because you know AVs will eventually take all their trips. You know, there'll be very few people who will use transit. You know, load factors, shares, so on and so forth will plummet. But still, obviously, the, the subsidies are going to come in. You know, is there really an impossibility theorem that there is no level of uh, share that transit could have before people start saying it's time to pull the plug? You're, 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 that's, you know, that's a great point. I think you can see a lot of these, these tiny transit agencies that, you know, you can, you see across the United States, them going away. Um, but for the, the legacy 
the half a dozen legacy transit systems yeah. tend to, you know, have big, you know, heavy rail backbones. Right. They, I think, are going to persist. You know, I and I think Manhattan has the, you know, the density to justify a a a you know a rapid transit system, and that is where you're just not going to see. You're not going to be able to see the kinds of improvements. That, and, and that's honestly what I what I think is going Mark, to happen. I think we're just not go going automated. to see improvements in those those niche markets. Right, but why wouldn't they want to go automated too? I mean, I think I think they will. It's yeah, just so a question you're, you're of can they get using through labor at that point? In other words, if, if New York City says, "Look, we have to be able to compete with these guys. We're going to have to go automated too." You know, then at least we'll start to get momentum. Where okay, we're going to make adjustments in labor. You know, you're going to slowly accept it. And then we'll see if, you know, if any of them can even even survive, right? I mean, that seems to me to me a plausible long-run equilibrium. In I, I have a couple of questions, and, and maybe Mark, you, you, you're, the, you're the guy to answer it. What's the definition of transit? Because, and then the reason why I ask that, you know, what I'm, we're trying to do in Trenton with respect to Trenton moves, is provide mobility to folks, you know, in, on streets, you know, between A and B. Is that transit or is that, what is that? What, what, what do we call the provision, some provider who, who out there has, you know, pay a fare or be a member or who knows how you, select who who's allowed to get on not get on and all that stuff but to go from a to b what's that called is that transit i think you know you know in a loose a, a i loose think it is of transit i think you would include that i, I, I mean matt the mass transit part though i mean when we're thinking about these large conventional transit vehicles um and especially right. so, what so, is but, eligible but, but, to receive grant funding from the from fta and is regulated by FT, the Federal Transit Administration, um, you know, I mean, I, I, it, that's part it, of it, it too. It, it's what, 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 el like eligibility for grants will in part dictate the restrictions that are placed on these, these emerging modes. So if they, if they end up accepting money from government agencies that have strings attached, they need to be aware of that because that could that could greatly restrict is, their, is their naive operation. as I am, okay, or let's say whatever I'm trying to do in Trenton, whatever that the heck that is, you know, I don't want us to apply for grants. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna make money off of this. Okay. We might have different differential pricing. Some people might pay market price, the other people will get a a discount card for who knows how they get it. You know, we figure out a mechanism. Uh, certainly don't want any federal money. The hell with that. I mean, cost you two bucks for every buck you get. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that, I, I don't I don't know if that's true or not. Sorry, Cliff, I didn't do the analysis. I just throw that sucker out there. But, you know, don't want it. I mean, look, people people want to go from A to B. And, and that A to B, they can't walk it. And, and, and they're, they're more than willing to pay for it. You know, I pay for these cars I have out here. And, and what the hell is the price of Brent yesterday? 105? Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, come on. And, and yet, you know, 
where's my elasticity on these things, Cliff? I mean, you don't even, right? We pay for it gladly. We get benefit out of it. And, and why not put something else out there and get benefit? Or, you know, we do the whole elevator analogy thing. My goodness, you know, Hamilton Jewelers up in the corner, Nassau Street, Witherspoon. Boy, I, I bet they would pay any mobility system that would take me from my home to walk in that door to go buy, you know, maybe a necklace for my wife. I mean, holy hell, they, they would be, they'd be fighting to, which, which is the way elevators work in buildings. If you want to charge rent on the 14th floor, you know, you've got to provide that. Don't you, Cliff? Absolutely. Otherwise, you, you don't collect the rent, do you? Let me make one point. I don't now, know. I want to make sure I get this in. Yeah, okay, my please. Most, my, 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 my most important point, since I've now had the, the months of anger pent up about this, and that's the yeah. technology naysayers. Yeah. Right, who I consider my who are my biggest enemies in this, the people who, you know, AVs are not going to work. And, you know, economists are not, the, let's say, the most socially skilled people. These people are up there with economists. I will not mention names, but <laughs> <laughs> they, belong, they belong with economists in terms of their social skills. All right. uh, so this is the economics of technological change that I think you know, should get out there. Okay. First of all, you know, predicting technological change is, is one of the most important things in the economics profession. You know, Bob Solo got a Nobel Prize and Paul Romer got a Nobel Prize. Now, they had different ideas. You know, Solo basically said, look, the technological change comes from so many different sources at so many different times that it really is close to impossible to predict where and when it's gonna come and you know, it's probably best that you treat it as exogenous. Okay? And that was Solo's growth theory. It's technology and innovation is, is what drives the economy, but you know, it's very hard to really come up with policies. And, and you know, Solo, a brilliant guy, when I've seen him even testify and people ask him, okay, well, what do you recommend, Professor Solo? You know, it doesn't come off very strongly as to, you know, well, what we really can do other than an investment tax credit. You know, it's, you got to say something, but that's about it. Now, Romer, you know, pushed it uh, and said, look, there's endogenous technological change. Ideas matter and knowledge is important. And we get this through collaboration. And so, yes, we can get innovation and technology with communities uh, where we share ideas and, and the like. And sure, I mean, you, know, you can get some examples of, of doing that. And then that motivates you know, economies of agglomeration, which is critical again for transportation to get people together, fine. But even then that's very difficult. But then let's look at autonomous vehicles. You've got really both things at work. It's really hard to see exactly where everything is coming from. It's all over the world. I mean, I don't understand how anybody can say, oh, we're never gonna get these things. And they live in America. I mean, I don't know what's going on in Norway. I mean, I know that China is going to put out an AV road only. Doesn't that tell you something? Yeah, I mean, this is this is crazy to sort of say that you can make predictions on a global phenomenon just by living in the US. All right, so we have that part of it. But then in, in, in terms of sources of endogeneity and collaboration, we see that too. So that's, again, a very positive development. You know, repeatedly, we see companies working together, you know, different types of industries that are in there. 
So that's good. Now, what's the empirical evidence all right, on this? Is there any evidence that I've ever seen or that you've ever seen where an entire industry has made a commitment to a technology, made investments, and came up with nothing, zero return. Remember, I'm talking about an industry, an entire industry has failed. I don't know of one. I know of plenty of examples of firms within an industry that made a bet, an investment in a technology, and they failed and they were surpassed by other firms that had a better technology. And you guys could probably you know, rattle off you know, the, the people that iPad and iPhone you know, replaced and you know, all the way down the list is to ones who do that. And I see that's exactly in the spirit of what I would expect with AVs. Yes, they're gonna be failures. We expect that, that happens all the time. But again, we're gonna see new things come along too. So if you look at the theory and any evidence of technological change in the economics literature, I am at a loss to understand the dogmatism, and that really is the word to describe it, the dogmatism of the anti-AV people that say, we're just not gonna have it. It just is completely at odds with what we know about the theory and evidence on technological change. And obviously, you know, these people have either no knowledge or no interest in this kind of thing. Or go ahead, jump on. <laughs> you, you want to add to it, or you know, well, maybe I'll add a little bit. But go ahead, Mark. I, I don't. I don't really have much to add from Cliff. But you know, Cliff is proving you know that that economics need not be dismal on, on questions <laughs> like this. So I, I, I very much appreciate the 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 optimism. Um, and you know, I've tried to think. Would, would you put cold fusion in that? Uh, that uh, category, Cliff, of, of, of an industry that went belly up. Um, although that was more, I don't know if you would, that's the closest I could think of. Uh, I, I was, I was cold thinking hot. I want to add both, both cold and hot fusion. Neither of them have, <laughs> neither of them have made Although it. I, they're saying, you know, I've, I've heard it. Maybe uh, they're still, they're, 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 the cold one did die, though. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, to me, I guess. Uh, but I, I, I'm so laser focused. I'm so biased. I'm, I'm, I've, I've consumed so much of the, of the, um, of the Kool Aid. You know, I can't see straight. But, but I look at this technology as to what it can do to move people really easily. And there's no reason why it has to be expensive. And in fact, I think you're going to get shared rides. And if you ask me about whether or not this increases congestion, it eliminates congestion. Because in fact, when do you have a probability that you're going to get shared rides? When there are a lot of people that want to go in the same direction at the same time. <laughs> and guess where the congestion is, where everybody wants to go in the same direction at the same time. Oh, my goodness. And so now out here on Route 1, instead of having one person in each vehicle, you have three. Okay. Why? Because, hey, it was convenient. The information. I think, to me, one of the reasons why we don't share rides we don't have a convenient information system that even tells us about opportunities to share those of us that drive our own personal cars. 
I don't know when my neighbors want to go someplace that they could have just as easily hopped in with me. How many of those opportunities are lost? Are we really all that independent and that so so separated that we and all of a sudden if if it's you know a little bit more like how people share elevators and again coming down to the damn elevator analogy i mean the way that system works in buildings it is beautiful okay and now maybe it's easier because it's just a shaft and it's just going up and down as opposed to you know two-dimensional who knows where but my goodness you know we don't have an elevator for each person and, and, and when there's the high demand, we just squeeze in there a little bit more, even in COVID. Okay. So, I mean, and, and I think that this is what's going to happen. I, I don't know. That's unfortunately, I can't get those things out of my head. Alan, you know, I think another thing is, you know, normally that people focus on the origin and destination of the trip. But what AVs will do will then have you focus on the trip itself. That is, imagine now to get shared rides, you may have AV opportunities where AVs are driving around a neighborhood and say, look, we're gonna offer breakfast. And you know, there, there's something you wanna do in the morning, get to work, come on our AV and we can sit and we'll serve you breakfast. Or you wanna see, you wanna go somewhere and you wanna see a show, you know, en route, come with us. You know, who knows the kinds of things en route that AVs will be able to offer and then simultaneously attract more people in such vehicles. And again, that'll be a way of reducing the individual uh, use of, of vehicles. I mean, and no, again, to, this to, will evolve. Yeah, no, to me, I mean, that's why I always thought Google was in this. Oh, my goodness. If they have me in a vehicle... Whew, they have my attention. Now, of course, they put it in New York City cabs, too, and this person is barking at you, and I do everything to try to <laughs> turn the damn thing off and uh, beat on and whatever. But, you know, the, but the Google folks are really bright. They're going to figure out, oh, I wanted to see that. Ooh, and all of a sudden, then they reach in my pocket, and they take even more money. <laughs> and I don't go to Washington, and I don't ask those folks for a penny. <laughs> you know, to, to your point uh, that you were making a, a minute ago, Cliff, uh, when we turn to some of the headlines, GM and Cruise are now asking federal regulators for permission to build and deploy self-driving vehicles without steering wheels, without brake pedals. And that's one of the new developments. And as you say, uh, would they be doing this if they didn't think there was a future in it? Bosch and Volkswagen have formed a partnership to develop self-driving technology suitable for mass production. They say they expect the first level two functions to arrive next year and bumping things up beyond that. Alan, any comment on those headlines? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the comments are, you know, that people have been tr trying to get NHTSA to be able to to allow vehicles without, without steering wheels for a while. And so, come on, NHTSA, you, you know, uh, think about it and, you know, make that happen. Mark, you, you've been following that. Um. Yeah. So this is, this would be the first um, uh, automated driving system related exemption for passenger vehicles. Granted, because right now Neuro has the only ADS related exemption. GM Cruise had originally filed a petition a couple of years ago uh, for a, uh, a vehicle like this built on the, the Chevy Bolt platform um, they subsequently withdraw this and now they have the cruise origin. 
But I think what, what gets missed a lot in the discussion of these federal motor vehicle safety standard exemptions is it's not just about getting these things on the road and having NHTSA sign off on that. It is about the information that these developers have to provide NHTSA to demonstrate that these vehicles will have an equivalent level of safety or better. That kind of information, uh, showing NHTSA, you know, giving them a look under the hood, so to speak, of the safety case of these vehicles, that will help NHTSA develop the, the longer term rulemaking projects to modernize these, these federal motor vehicle safety standards. So developers of the futures don't have to seek exemptions for their their non-compliant AVs. So that I think is a critical, you know, point. Uh, you know, at this stage, this exemption process, getting that information to regulators uh, can 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 pay dividends down down the line, not just for this specific potentially exempt AV. And Mark, I don't know if you can, you know, uh, you know, comment on this. Also, I, I've argued, we've argued on here for for quite some time that this whole industry should should have a uh, an exemption from uh, from antitrust to collaborate on in, on safety. Okay, I think the air industry collaborates on safety. I think Boeing and Airbus collaborate on safety of airplanes. I I believe so. I'm I'm not you know, deep enough policy guy to really understand that. But my goodness, th this industry, if it collaborates on safety and competes on all the other stuff that really is going to make it or break it in the marketplace, it, it, it just helps everybody. It helps, it, help, it just helps everybody and th they shouldn't be competing. And, and if now being op more open in the provision of the, of the safety reasons why you don't need a steering wheel and so on and so forth in a car would be, would be moving in that direction. Either of you have comments on, the, on that, then, that aspect? Alan, it's, it's kind of funny. Mark probably thinks the same thing. Look, in the end, NHTSA will force them to collaborate on safety because what happens NHTSA doesn't come up with any safety regulation they go to the they go to the industry for advice right the, the right. airlines tell NHTSA you know what it is uh, that's FAA and that's yeah, they, yeah, yeah and that's what yeah, NHTSA yeah. does it's the same thing will happen with AVs well the uh, AV industry will tell NHTSA here are the things that are important for our vehicles and NHTSA will probably sign off on it, don't you think? I, I hope so. But where, where does antitrust fit in? Where, where's collusion fit in on this whole thing? Where, where, does, where does that? Well, you don't, you don't accuse an agency of collusion. You know, well, it's hard to bring an antitrust case against a government agency. I think that the kind of, the kind of thing NHTSA would be after and what they would ultimately mandate would be the kind of technical standards that are, that are being developed right now. And that's where you do see collaboration among industries people, you know, sitting on those standard uh, committees um, uh, working because that's what, you know, that is what NHTSA is tasked to do under the Vehicle Safety Act. It is minimum performance requirements. And, you know, you can go above and beyond that. And that can take, take lots of different shapes, ultimately what's delivered to the consumers. But, um, you know, what they're interested in is, is minimum performance, uh, safety and performance. So, I think we're seeing that. I don't know if we need to, I don't, I don't think we need to really reinvent the wheel when it comes to NHTSA's authorities. I do think we would strengthen the incentive uh, for companies to provide more information to NHTSA if uh, we, we increased, at least for light duty vehicles, the annual exemption cap for, uh, uh, which is right now 2,500 vehicles uh, for uh, two, two years, uh, 
potential two-year renewal. So at max for uh, for a company, you're looking at ten thousand. You can't scale with you know say urban transportation um, with that. But uh, as the Congress has previously considered, you know significantly increasing that, you know that might provide more incentive for companies to to share information and share it earlier with NHTSA. So that's something I think Congress should should keep in mind as it as it considers pursuing AV legislation in the future. Talk about lawmakers, Alan, one more little headline to bring up here. State lawmakers in Utah have approved a bill that says a driver who activates a self-driving feature while under the influence can still be cited for DUI because someone still has to be in charge of the vehicle. I think you might argue the same thing. Well, right? I mean, isn't that obvious? I mean, it's absolutely obvious. I mean, in anything that's out there right now, uh, you know, just because you engage this thing doesn't mean you can hop in the back seat, and whatever. I mean, uh, you know, you're 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 the one that's responsible there. You know, Elon doesn't take responsibility as soon as you engage whatever he calls whatever he has. You know, he still says, "Hey, you know, read the fine print." And the, the the Utah amendment, yeah, I mean, it basically it, no shocker as 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 Alan says, it's it's you know if you you have a level three ADS in a vehicle and you and the you have to be a fallback ready user, well, if you're supposed to be waiting to take up potentially take over, you you shouldn't be intoxicated. Same thing if you're a remote operator. Um, but that you know the reading this this bill um, made me think you know. Are we going to see, like we have uh, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration's role in, in drug and alcohol testing uh, today, are we going to see that extended to remote drivers in the future? Because if I am a, you know, I'm sitting in Palo Alto as a remote driver operating a vehicle uh, in Arizona, um, it's, it's a bit more difficult for the Arizona uh, authorities to enforce their, their state drug driving laws. Um, so potentially that's something in the future um, you know, are we going to see a, a stronger federal role uh, if, if, if AVs do have those kind of remote fallback? Uh, uh, Mark, Mark, I'll say don't hold your breath on that one, okay? And, and the reason why not only, look, uh, remote driving of these things is to me, I mean, if you want, to, if you want something that ain't gonna happen, uh, to me, that's the one. Uh, do you re do you realize what our reaction time is when we drive a vehicle? And if we're even transmitting from California to Arizona, the delays and all, and the, the perception that we have, you're going to give this to some somebody in a hollowed out mountain. I mean, cut it out. I, I can, I, you know, I can't drive in Manhattan. I mean, I, I might go in there again, maybe once in my life. I, I don't think I'm going to go in there twice. I just can't do it anymore. It, driving, I mean, it is a real time function. Okay. And when things start to unravel, they unravel quickly. And, and that's why this whole level three stuff is, you know, <laughs> I mean, video I gamers talk about completely. latency. About, I, I, I guess that's the point he's making. You know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I uh, was convinced, you know, uh, a decade ago by uh, by the late Cliff Nass's simulator at Stanford that we're we're not going to see that. So, uh, oh, I, Cliff, I hey, it, that uh, bring what a what a wonderful guy, Princeton grad, uh, you know, whatever, loved him, um, 
what a loss anyway. Uh, thank you for, for reminding Alan us. Alan has actually given a nice proof <laughs> of the fundamental problem with the, again, to swing back to, to David's article about the criticisms of the quote 94.6% concerns about you know, human error, right? So you know, people trying to sort of downplay the importance of AV saying, well, human beings don't really count for that much of the cause of accidents, right? And you know, I think he mentioned that in, in the piece saying that, that that's overstated. And to, to tie in my final point, what that misses and that Alan effectively points out is selectivity. That is any time, virtually any time there's an accident, the key thing is the driver was there. Like if Alan were driving in New York and there were a storm and that washed out the road and the police officer came to see Alan's crash, he would say, oh, that's an infrastructure problem. You know, the water washed out the road. That was a driver error, right? But Alan made the choice to be there. Or in this case, he made the choice not to be there. That is selectivity bias. Virtually every accident can be interpreted that people have made the choice to be on that road, to drive in those conditions, to be out there at that time, all of that. And none of the people who make judgments about the causes of accident ever account for that fundamental choice initially, your decision to be out there at that time in that place. And again, people will say these things, but there's just basic principles are just not being used. And it's very misleading. Uh, and apparently you know, people have bought up at this and it's just wrong. Selectivity bias is critical and probably would make it look like that almost all of accidents are somehow related to human error. It's, it's very hard not to. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the number of times a meteorite comes out of the sky and hits you, you know, is, is rare. Uh, yes, a bridge did collapse in Pittsburgh a couple of, you know, week or so ago, or, you know, right when the infrastructure bill money or something came out just in time. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I never, I won't say what I said. To, <laughs> never. They didn't, they didn't fake it. But anyway, uh, stage it. But, you know, some of those things do happen but they are really rare, okay? The others are, you know, people were out there this morning in the ice storm in New Jersey driving like, hey, come on. And guess what? You're misbehaving when you do that, okay? You're the one that's, by being out there, that's how, that's how you get to the 94, you, you know, the, the, the human is just involved in some, it's just, <laughs> it's a human problem. Well, we want to thank the humans who are with us here, here today. <laughs> Maybe we are. Cliff, are we? Are we? <laughs> Cliff and Mark, uh, really terrific. Thank you so much for a, a really great discussion. Someday we want to be on with a, with a policymaker. That's, that's what we would love. We would love so, so somebody who really could benefit from a discussion with AVs is in a you know, position to have some influence on policy to, to chat with us, or at well, least I think we have some, I think we have some invitations out there, but we'll, re, we'll renew yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, but Cliff, that, that really is, I mean, uh, you know, you're, you, you guys are down there in Washington, and if in fact, 
we could, it, it would be nice, or maybe, I don't know, maybe they need to invite us to hearings or something. I, I don't know. I guess you get it done a little bit in hearings. I know here in New Jersey, we have, we, you, you know, we have several who are, who are just, I, uh, what we're doing here in Jersey is I guess we're just waiting to see what we need when we yeah. get to a point where it's, we need something, you know, we are still very much at the very beginning of this. As Cliff mentioned, there are many different directions. We, we still have the opportunity to go. Um, and of course, uh, we desperately, and, and the longest thing that, that it takes in these things, certainly if I can say my experience in New Jersey has proven to be able to, 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 to get uh, the, the welcoming that you need. Uh, so that you can even sit down and talk with people and get them even thinking about the concept of deployment, of actually being out there every day, moving people, you know, and, and providing, delivering that value or goods, either one. It's the same thing is, you know, it's easy to do a test. Well, it's not that easy. You don't have that going yeah. on down here. This is not going on the federal government. No, I think you're thinking New Jersey is important. Uh, I, uh, we're we're, we're trying going to on down here. We're, we're we're trying to do it here, and I think you know we have a reasonable chance. And I just you know, I was down as I already mentioned at, at Trenton High School today, just talking to teachers and talking to administrators as to you know how to get the kids involved in this this leading sort of leading edge thing that we're trying to do in, in Trenton. And I mean the. To, to see the brightness in their face as to hey this is this is this is an opportunity not just to do mobility but but to improve education in a school system as a school board is is a state appointed school board and why is it a state appointed school board well you know the reason why and I mean come on and all this to and package all this together and provide mobility for them, their parents, their grandparents, and so on. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, this, these, I don't know. There, there's got to be some economic value in all that, Cliff. I think it just has to be. I mean, there just has to be. And that leads us, Alan, to the uh, Smart Driving Car Summit coming up in May, which, and yep. that's what this is going to be about. Yeah, that's exactly what it's going to be about. And, you know, the key piece that we're talk, talking to them about is, is having, you know, a, a festival at the high school with the kids that will then bring their parents and their grandparents and, you know, have a chance. Nobody in New Jersey knows what this stuff is. Nobody in New Jersey knows what this stuff is. And we're we've hoping had, like, to have three the vehicles. And... We've had three vehicles here ever. It's not, it's not like, you know, California or Arizona. It, even there, it's not. I mean, nobody knows. And we're hoping to have the company. You, you saw the commercial uh, in the on. Super Bowl with Meadow Soprano on electric yes. vehicles. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about? That's what yeah. we need for AVs. Well, uh, having we, Meadow, you know, in an AV talking to her brother in the car. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, 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 I, I think well, you'd you know, have, you'd have an automated vehicle dumping a body in the woods, but that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, on that, I mean, I, you know, we're looking at two places to do this festival. Okay. One is the high school, which is kind of on a Saturday, whatever, because what they have fields in place, we can do it. The other, I have the audacity to suggest 
is Donley Homes, public housing complex. Okay, whatever went in your brain as a public housing complex, that's what this is. And, and, and we're seriously considering doing the festival there because that's our customers. Those are those those are the those are the those are the first people that that could at least we think that could really use us. They're the kids. They're the parents. They're the grandparents that live there. And my good, I mean, I just I can't wait to see Waymo, you know, bring their if they they, they would they they wouldn't dare bring their Chandler vehicles to a public housing complex. But that's where the mobility is needed, and that's the whole thing. I don't know. That's what we. That's what we think here in Jer in Jersey, and that's what we, and that's where we'd like to start. And I think that's where we. So I don't know. I don't know where we're gonna. We're still working on where at least the festival piece of this thing, and the key to the festival piece, is not only for the people to see what might be possible in the technology or what this part of might be all about. It's for the people who are working on the technology to actually meet the people who might actually be their customers. I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, whatever year old with uh, champagne going down the Jersey Turnpike. I, you know, maybe, sure, you know, they already have their limousine. They already have their driver. Actually, it would be, they would put their nose up at something like this. Whereas these folks, oh my goodness, the expanded opportunity that it brings to them easily. I don't know, we're gonna, we're gonna see what we can do here. Both of you guys, I hope, you know, I have you on a program, so you're coming, whether you like it or not. <laughs> anyway, well, it, um, is, it is all about improving lives. If you, yeah, as no, said, I think know. so. I don't yeah. know. We're, we'll see what the hell we can do. I don't know. On that note, we want to thank our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO, and more info is available at MOTOETF.com. Technical support is provided by CARTS, the Corporation for Automated Road Transportation Safety, a 501c3 corporation. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, wherever you turn to for podcasts. Your smart speaker can play us too. You can find my tech reports at textonation.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching. Please stay safe.